Amen. Thank you again, Jake and Emily. John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8. Trust and obey. Simple truths. And would keep us out of a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? If we just simply trusted and obeyed. And we'll speak to that a little bit in this morning's message. Is I plan, with the Lord's help, to present a second part to the message I started last week on the truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. We talked about in John 8 and verse 31 that this transition verse here, Jesus says to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That's speaking back to verse 30 of that group that believed on Jesus. And I believe in this passage there's a couple of different groups. There's those who truly trusted Christ as their Savior, but then there is still that group that is in, in animosity towards Jesus. And I, I believe that they uh, are inter- interjecting themselves later in this passage. And there's that group, again, identified as the Jews that are led by the religious leaders who are actively seeking to take Jesus and to throw him in prison to murder him. They have already made some futile attempts up to this point, but Jesus keeps coming back and preaching the truth courageously and boldly with a heart for the lost, with a passion and a burden for those who would trust him as their savior. In spite of the persecution, in spite of the, 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 those who would be attacking him and persecuting him and attempting to take him uh, off to prison, in spite of all of that opposition, Jesus continued to courageously and boldly proclaim the truth. And we see here, as he is going through in this conversation, back and forth in this dialogue, he is giving us, in this passage, a couple of different marks of true discipleship. There are many more. I mentioned last week that First John is John's epistle where he gives several evidences of true discipleship, true salvation. And we, uh, Lord willing, maybe one day we'll go through the book of 1 John. But here in this passage, there are at least two specific marks of true discipleship that we can uh, pull out from this passage. And one I mentioned last week is continuing in the truth. Continuing in the truth. Again, verse 31, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus equates his word, my word, verse 31, with the truth. So Jesus is saying, as we read in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And a true disciple will continue in the truth, will not apostatize, will not go away, but will continue, remain, and abide in the truth. And that begins with knowing Christ as one Savior. As we looked at last week, true discipleship begins with entering into the family of God by faith. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So to be a true disciple of Christ, you must know Christ as your Savior, having repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross. 
Secondly, we must know the word of God to continue in the truth that just makes sense. We, we are abiding in the word of God. We are knowing the word of God. But it's not just about Bible trivia. It's not just factual or intellectual knowledge. But knowing the word in order to know Christ, in order to build our relationship with Christ, in order to nurture that relationship with him. This results in spiritual maturity and discernment, sensitivity to sin, fruit of the Spirit, and prayer as we dialogue with our Heavenly Father, as the Word of God speaks to us and we speak to the Father in prayer. We are knowing the Word of God, increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 3 and verse 16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Ephesians 3 and verse 17, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So the Bible is not a textbook that's just full of facts. The Bible is the revealed Word of God. God breathed revelation of the living Word, Jesus Christ. So we must know the Word of God to continue in the truth. Obviously, we must be truly born again to be a true disciple. But thirdly, we looked at last week, we must live obedient to the word of God, obedient to the truth, not just being hearers only, but being doers of the word, not deceiving ourselves, as James 1 and verse 22 says. So again, we see that Jesus equates my word, his word, with the truth. And I spoke last week a little bit about the lies that permeate our culture that we even as believers can get caught up in, can get deceived by if we're not careful. There are lies about parenting. There are obviously false religions, lies about God. There are lies about life, as we're seeing in our culture, regarding unborn, preborn life. I'm thankful that our state legislature just passed a bill, and Governor Holcomb signed into law a bill that offers protections for 98% of preborn, unborn babies in the state of Indiana. I'm thankful for that. If you've read in the news, there are lies after lies after lies after lies that are told about human life, to try to dehumanize human life, to try to make babies, preborn, unborn babies, seem less human or not have rights, not have dignity. We know that every human life Life begins at conception and every human life has dignity because every human life is made in the image of God. And we're going to continue to stand for the truth of the word of God regarding human life. There are lies of all kinds in our culture today. Lies about sin. It won't affect me. It'll never happen to me. I can control it. There are so many lies that we can accommodate if we're not careful. We must continue in the truth of the Word of God. There are lies about the origin of the universe. We know very clearly in Genesis 1, the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's lies about gender and, and, and identity. Lies that now the world believes that are reprobates. Lies that deny biological realities. But we continue to stand for the Word of God and continue to proclaim the truth regarding identity, human identity, male and female created, he, them. 
And we know that marriage is one between one man and one woman for life. And we will continue to proclaim that truth and continue to stand for that truth. We're not going to accommodate the lies of some false view of marriage that claims to include a denial of the reality of male and femaleness and men and women and all that goes with it. There is really no such thing as same-sex marriage, as I mentioned last week. There is marriage as designed by God, as defined by God, and we continue to proclaim that truth and stand for that truth. But there's a second mark of discipleship, not just continuing in the truth, knowing, one's, knowing Christ as one's Savior, knowing the Word of God and and, and growing in that relationship and increasing in the knowledge of God, not only living obedient to the word of God, but this, this continues, as Jesus emphasizes in this dialogue, in this conversation, we see a second mark of true discipleship, and that is righteous living. Righteous living. This continues on the heels of this living in obedience to the word of God. Notice what he says in verse 33. Actually, the... Uh, in, in verse 32, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then verse 33, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Now that's interesting. Are they denying their own history? Or are they referring to some sort of spiritual bondage? Think, think about it for a minute. If they, are, if they are saying they've never been in any kind of physical or political bondage, then they're denying that they were slaves in Egypt at one point? That God rescued them out of Egypt? Are they denying the book of Judges where they went in a vicious cycle of sin and oppression and repentance and deliverance and then back in that same cycle again of sin and oppression? And repentance and deliverance. And then there was the Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And then there was Babylon in 586 B.C. when the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and took the Jews into captivity. And then from there was the Medo-Persian Empire, and then there was the Greek Empire, and even now as they are speaking to Jesus, they are, they are under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. So what are they talking about? We've never been in any bondage. It's possible that they were just completely ignoring historical facts, or they were saying, we're free because of Abraham, because of the Old Testament's. We're not in any bondage. We are going to heaven because we have kept the law. We are keepers of the Mosaic law. We are followers of Abraham. We're of the seed of Abraham. Now, this is where it can get a little confusing because the, the, the group here could be a, another group that is antagonistic toward Jesus, or it's simply the, the believers who are, who, are, who are trying to understand and trying to grasp what discipleship, what true following of Jesus is, and Jesus is instructing them. And I don't want to get caught up in all of that. I want us to understand that Jesus says that a mark of true discipleship is righteous living, is living 
a life of holiness and purity, not a life that's marked by sin and unrighteousness. True freedom comes in Jesus Christ. Verse 35 we read, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. There's a reference there to the obedient believer being the genuine son. Possibly a reference back to Hagar and Ishmael and uh, in Abraham's uh, day with Isaac being the, the chosen son. Uh, maybe that's a reference to that. We don't, we don't know for sure. But the point is that the obedient believer is giving evidence that he is the genuine son, the genuine child of God. Again, there are lots of people today who claim Jesus, who claim to be a follower of Jesus. I mentioned this last week. You can meet people, knock on doors, in the stores, all kinds of different places. I've met them throughout my life. People who say, oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I love Jesus. I know Jesus. They'll know all the Jesus lingo. They'll, they'll, they'll even buy all the, as one man said, they'll buy even all the Jesus junk, if I can say that reverently. And that means they have all the crosses and all the frames and all the sayings and all the t-shirts and all of the decorations and all the bumper stickers and on and on it goes, right? They can even have all that. But what is the evidence of a true follower of Jesus? Is it a frame on the wall? Is it a certain t-shirt that one wears? Is it a bumper sticker? Honk if you love Jesus. Does that mark the true disciple? Jesus says that the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Oh, we have a lot of talk about freedom today, don't we? We want political freedom, and believe me, I don't want the government messing with my, my home and telling me how to raise my kids, and there's all kinds of government interference that I don't want. And, and we're, we're, we're thankful for some amendments and for a constitution, though it is being attacked and there's more and more pressure uh, against our freedoms. But is freedom just being able to do anything that I want, whenever I want, however I want to do it? What is true freedom? What is the freedom that Jesus is talking about? Down in verse 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. He says, Know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 speaks to this. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He, that's, he that saith... I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So what is a mark of true discipleship? What is this freedom? It is freedom from sin. It is freedom in Christ to obey and to honor our Heavenly Father, to serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have two fireplaces in our home. We don't use either one of them. We've turned on our gas fireplace, but utility costs can be outrageous right now. So we, have, uh, we didn't use it really, really at all over the winter. We turned it on a couple times, but we haven't used our, our gas fireplace really uh, at all. Uh, 
And then we have a wood-burning fireplace, but we haven't gotten it uh, inspected and cleaned out and everything, and we were told not to use it until you get it all inspected. And I don't even know if it would be that advantageous economically to use the wood-burning fireplace. But we know a fireplace is a relatively safe place to keep a fire because it's in the fireplace. It's a controlled environment. But if that fire gets outside the fireplace and gets on the curtains and gets on the floor and gets on the couch, uh-oh, we're in big trouble. So we often think of as freedom being allowed to do whatever I want. But you think about the freedom of a fire. Where is the real freedom of the fire? It's in the fireplace, controlled, where it brings warmth where it might cook some hot dogs or some marshmallows for some s'mores, where it has a function, where it serves its proper function and does something profitable and good. You get that fire outside the fireplace and it ruins, it destroys. And see, the, the world has all these lies and it twists and, and, and it wants to take the fireplace out of the fire, or the fire out of the fireplace, excuse me. And, and, and speaks to this, this sin being fun. And if it just can get out where we could just enjoy ourselves and sow our wild oats and, and do what we want to do instead of being so restricted by, by, by all this morality, as you might call it, as they sometimes make fun of us and call us different phobias in various terms that are used. And we've really, if we're not, if we're not careful, we've, we've really lost sight of what true freedom is. True freedom is freedom in Christ. The fire is best served in the fireplace where it offers warmth and it does what it's supposed to do in a controlled environment. And we need the morality of the Bible. We need the controlling of the Holy Spirit. We need the morality that comes through biblical principle, through obedience to God's commands, to God's principles, to the claiming of God's promises. That's where true freedom lies. It lies in the restrictions that God has designed for our good, for our holiness, and for His glory, ultimately. Freedom, as the world describes it, is actually bondage. Jesus speaks to those who are in bondage and he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He speaks of his yoke being easy, his burden being light. But see, the world tries to say all that Christianity stuff, it is a burden. It's restrictive. It keeps you from having fun. I remember uh, as, a, as a college student working uh, in between semesters at a book warehouse in one of the most boring jobs after we got done with our main work. If any of us wanted to stay for overtime or for extra hours, we would sometimes get put in the assembly department. I hated the assembly department. Stacking books, shrink-wrapping books, sending them down the line. Shrink-wrapping shrink books, stacking books. Sending, but we would sit there for sometimes hours and there would be these other college students and we'd get into a conversation. And I was a student at a Bible college, Christian college. I'm a Christian. And we start talking, comparing colleges, comparing lifestyles. And I'm saying I'm going to Bible college and I have these rules and I have this and I have that. 
And some of the rules I didn't care for, but I'm thankful for the rules. I'm thankful for the accountability I had in Bible college. I'm thankful for uh, the uh, restrictions that I had. Uh, Emily's going to the same college now, and she doesn't even have all the restrictions that I had. She's got it good. No, uh, But anyway, I, I, was, I was thankful for the, the rules. I was thankful for those, those props, as I sometimes call them. They were good for me. I needed that accountability. I needed that structure. But I'm talking to this other college student, and she looked at me like I was an alien life form from some other planet. Because I was talking about how I behave myself, and I, by the grace of God, have tried to live a righteous life, and I make certain moral choices, and I do certain things, and I've never had a drop of alcohol in my life, and that really blew her away. You've never had a drop of alcohol in your life? No. I was never allowed at my home. I'm thankful I've never had it. She said, that's what I live for. It starts on Thursday night, and it ends Monday morning. And she's describing her lifestyle at this particular college and the drunkenness and the life that she lived. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, I want nothing to do with that. You call that freedom? You're making fun of me? You're mocking me? Because I don't do all these licentious activities? And I, I don't have all this fun. But I don't particularly think it's fun to be sitting over a toilet puking my guts out on Monday morning because I've had three nights of alcoholism and whatever else. See, the world portrays all of that as fun, as true freedom, but it's bondage. In Christ, we have victory over sin. We have freedom from sin. We have freedom from the guilt and regret of sin and sin's consequences. There's a positional freedom in Christ when we get saved, but then there's the progressive freedom from sin that we have in Christ as we live for the Lord, as we become more fully sanctified and become what we already are positionally in Christ in a progressive sanctification. We read in Romans 6 and verse 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I want to be a servant of righteousness. I don't want to be a servant of sin. Sin is a very cruel taskmaster. Oh, it's portrayed as very fun and exciting and in with the times and all of the different slogans that are thrown out. But Satan and sin are cruel. They are punishing. They are destructive. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs has a lot to say about the fool and the scorner and the scoffer and the consequences of that kind of a life. Romans 6 and verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so, even so, now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. And then he asked this question, what fruits? What fruits had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? He said, what benefit, what fruits, what profit was it in sin? What fruit of sin did you get? 
You are now ashamed of those things. You have been born again. You've been saved out of that. You look at that and what fruit did that sin bear in your life? It was fruit of destruction, fruit of bondage, fruit of all kinds of horrible consequences. He asked the question, what fruit had you then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The greatest life worth living is the Christian life. doesn't mean it's easy. It's going to bring its trials. It's going to bring its tribulations. It's going to bring its hardships. But the best life is not the book that a certain preacher wrote that describes a life of health and wealth and prosperity and of work salvation and of word faith and you creating your own destiny. No, the best life worth living is a life lived by the Word of God as a saved individual conformed to the image of God's Son. Live for him as a servant of righteousness unto holiness. Freedom means freedom from sin, freedom from the guilt and regret of sin and its consequences. It also means freedom to forgive and to let go of bitterness and anger. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. I don't know about you, but there is something Releasing about forgiveness. Releasing the bonds of captivity that bind us. Letting go of that bitterness and that anger. I remember as a freshman in college, as one of my professors dealt with the sin of bitterness, I remember coming under such conviction, I just wanted Dr. Hankins to quit teaching because I was under such conviction. There were people in my life that I was angry about. I was bitter toward. I couldn't stand them. I had to go back to my dorm room. I had to get on my knees. I had to weep and pour my heart out and ask God to forgive me for those evil thoughts. Now, I say this not to pat myself on the back because I'm a sinner and I'm only here by the grace of God. But I remember praying and pouring my heart out and asking God to forgive me, not knowing that years later, some of those very people that I was angry with, I would be dealing with them as they put their children into our Christian school where I was the principal. And I was now having to go to them as a fellow parent and shake their hand, welcome in orientation meetings, and teach their children and be a principal of their children. And I had, to, I had the privilege of shaking some of... I remember one guy in particular, I shook his hand, we gave each other a little hug. I... I He's still not living for the Lord, but at least we had peace. We had reconciled in such a way that we were able to shake each other's hands, put our hands on each other's back, and I was able to preach at graduation this past May with his son sitting in the, in the graduation service. And he was on the second row. And we were at peace. We were at the state fair this week, and we were looking for a particular cow <laughs> that... Uh, this one young lady uh, was uh, showing, uh, I guess that's what you do, you show a cow. I like to eat one personally, but anyway, um, or milk one, right? But they were showing cows, 
And we were looking for the, the cow of this particular young lady, and she is the daughter of uh, a, a, a man who I did not get along with in high school. We struggled big time. I mean, he did not like me, and I did not like him. I remember specific incidents where he mocked and made fun of me where I went into the restroom and cried my eyes out as a pipsqueak little 7th or 8th grader because he would not leave me alone. But God did a work in his heart and God did a work in my heart. And we were not able to see each other at the state fair, but we were able to text and my daughter was able to text with his daughter. And there was a peace and a relationship there that only God could have done. Only God could have done that. Only God could have brought that freedom from that bitterness and that anger. Only God could have allowed me to shake that man's hand one day and for us to look each other in the eye and for us to exchange pleasantries. And that man's serving the Lord today. He loves God and he's got a wonderful wife and wonderful kids. And he's serving the Lord faithfully. God can do that. That's freedom in Christ. That's freedom from the sin of bitterness and anger. Freedom in Christ means not being bound to this world and all its temporal passing pleasures of sin. Freedom in Christ means we're not bound to this temporal world and all of the dross and all of the wickedness and all the lies and all the lusts. We read in Hebrews chapter number 11 of a man who chose the freedom in Christ. Verse 25, actually verse 24 of Hebrews 11, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Think about it for a minute. Who received the freedom in Christ? What if Moses had chosen to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter? What if he had stayed in that palace? What would have happened to Moses? Quite possibly, he would have been struck dead in the plague as the firstborn adopted son, possibly. He would have been in bondage in Egypt. But instead, he had freedom in Christ. He had freedom in his relationship with God. And he was chosen by God to lead Israel out of bondage on the Exodus. And he has eternal reward and sets a great example for us. Freedom in Christ means freedom of the freedom of victory in Christ. And again, we go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory, we have freedom in Christ, even over death. I've talked about it in here before, I don't want to keep belaboring the point, but there is a bondage to death that our culture cannot get over. It cannot get past. Because... They don't know the peace, the freedom, the victory in Christ over death and sin in the grave. They're in bondage to their sin. They're in bondage to death. They're in bondage to the grave. They don't know what to do with it. 
But God's word gives the answer. And we have the opportunity to share that. I'm thankful for opportunities. Sometimes it's at funerals that we have the greatest opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be able to share the victory, the freedom that comes in Christ over death and sin in the grave at a time of sorrow and sadness where the world is just trying to figure out what does all this mean? What do I do? How do I handle this? What comes next? But in Christ, there is freedom. Freedom from sin and death in the grave. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We continue to serve. We continue to serve faithfully. And we continue to serve in love. Not bound by the bondage of sin, but having the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. And then there's one other freedom that I want to touch on today. And that's the freedom to love and to serve others without selfish desires and motives. The freedom that we have in Christ allows us to love and to serve others without selfish desires, without selfish motives. We can serve the Lord freely for His honor and for His glory without worried about, oh, am I going to get an award? Am I going to get the certificate? Am I going to get the prize? Am I going to get recognized? I wonder who noticed me today. Is it all about me and my attention and what I can get out of it? And I'm going to serve others, but I'm only going to serve them if they will reciprocate. What you do for me, you need, or what I do for you, you need to do back to me. If I scratch your back, then you scratch mine. That's the mentality many times. But in Christ, we have the freedom to love and to serve others and even to use our liberty in Christ for the benefit of others. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, For though I be free from all men, Paul writes, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Paul is using a little bit of a contradiction of terms, a a paradox. Uh, Not two doctors working together, but a paradox, a literary term. Seeming contradictions. And Paul is saying, I am not... A bond, I'm not in bondage to sin. I'm in bondage to Christ, which gives me liberty to serve others. See, we have this idea of Christian liberty. That means I get to do whatever I want to do. I can act however I want. All those little you know, so-called gray areas, they're just for me to enjoy and participate in and fooey on you. I'm just going to go live it up. Because I have this liberty in Christ. And you know what? As a matter of fact, I can live on the edge because if I fall off into the ditch on either side, I have the grace of God in that ditch to keep me up, to keep me afloat, to help me back on the road. That is not the attitude at all of the Apostle Paul about his liberty in Christ. His view of liberty in Christ is liberty to serve others, to love others, to give of himself to others, to help others in their spiritual walk, in their spiritual life, to help others grow up in Christ, to help mature them in the faith. Sometimes we as parents, we have to do this, don't we? We have to give up our liberty as parents to do things that are the best for our kids. We have to sacrifice our time. We have to sacrifice our money. We have to sacrifice our energies. We have to sacrifice sometimes our sleep for hours and for weeks and for months. 
And we sacrifice and we do so out of liberty of love for them. But do we have that same liberty of love for others outside of parenting and grandparenting, which are joys and, and, and blessings? But there's so many other areas in the family of God, in the church, where we can express the liberty of love that Paul describes. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 16, and we'll close with this as we've talked about freedom today, freedom in Christ. 1 Peter 2 and verse 16, we read, As free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Freedom. The truth shall make you free. Free to live a righteous life that demonstrates that we are true disciples of Christ. Freedom from the guilt and regret of sin and sin's consequences, both positional and progressive sanctification. Freedom to forgive and let go of bitterness and anger. Freedom from being bound to this world and all its temporal passing pleasures of sin and lust. Freedom of victory in Christ over sin and death in the grave and freedom to love and to serve others without selfish desires and motives. May we live out this freedom that has set us free because we know the truth, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of the word of God that truly sets us free. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you, Lord, for these truths that really, truly set us free from sin. And Lord, we give you the glory for it. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place and paid the penalty for our sin, that we might have freedom, true freedom in Christ, to love you and to serve you and to serve others and love others.